Okay, this this is where I normally mess up quite a bit is the intro. Okay, and action. Um, good morning. Um, I'm Gary, the CEO of High Five, and today we've got Siobhan McKellar, who is the GM of People, Culture, and Change at Deluxe Group. Deluxe Group is situated in Clayton, Melbourne, Australia, and is a company dating back to 1918 with its original heritage in a decorative paint for Australia and New Zealand homes. So, well, uh, thanks for joining us this morning. We really appreciate your time um, and really get stuck in to find out more just about yourself, culture, and just how you got to where you are today. Great. It's great to be with you today, Gary. Thanks. Well, I'm just going to jump in. I mean, can you tell us more just about Deluxe Group and your background and how you came to become the EGM of people culture and change yeah so Dulux group is a paints coatings and sealants company as you mentioned based in Melbourne Australia and we've recently been acquired by Nippon Paints so it's the fourth largest paint company in the world and I was recruited as the EGM people culture and change to essentially help the leaders to continue to build a culture that can grow and that can innovate and that can continue to be customer focused. Well, and um, I mean, I'm quite interested to find out just more just about, um, you know, you describe yourself as an insider in your new book, the, the Insider's Guide to Culture Change. So tell me more just about why an insider? Yeah, basically, I had a, I've had a career in two halves, Gary. So the first half of my career was a decade that I spent as a management consultant, and I spent time at both PwC in London, and then I moved um, to Australia, and I also was was part of Accenture for a number of years. So that decade as a management consultant was very satisfying in many ways. I flew in and out of many organizations, advising them about workplace change and culture in particular. But after that decade, I felt there was something missing and I really wanted to move from an outsider to an insider role and, and basically roll up my sleeves and, and put into play a lot of the methodologies and the tools that I'd uh, been telling clients about. So, I moved inside an organization as the executive in charge of workplace culture and I've been an insider ever since in a series of multinational organizations in charge of culture change. And, and, and how do you find the difference from being an insider to, I guess, an outsider? I think both are incredibly valuable roles because you mm. get a different perspective in each role. So as an outsider, you're on the boundaries, you can see things that maybe people on the inside wouldn't see. But as an insider, I found that I started to really test what works and what doesn't work when it comes to culture change. And I started to see that some of the things that uh, we thought were um, effective, maybe on the inside, that weren't working as well. So that also led me to, to write the book, The Insider's Guide to Culture Change, about how can you fast track and accelerate and create a culture that can deliver, grow, and adapt. Well, I mean, you mentioned that fast track and, and fast change and accelerate culture. Uh, uh, we've come across that with quite a few clients and customers that are using um, High Five, and I think the biggest challenge they're facing is that um, you've got these large organisations, or almost almost like ships. You know, they're trying to change and adjust their culture, 
where you've got these young uh, companies like startups they can quickly adapt and change and innovate on on their culture what what do you see as some of the big some some well, i wouldn't say big but some some small quick wins or tips to help large organizations change and adapt their culture yeah, I think one of the ways to do that is through the remarkable power of role reframing. I talk about role reframing in, in the book, but essentially it's this concept that often in organisations we think we have to change people and their personality in order to bring about change, but actually you can reframe somebody's role and the change can come about much more quickly. So if you even think about a typical day in your life, you might wake up and you, you might greet your, your partner or your spouse in role of husband. Then if you've got children, you might step into the role of parent. Uh, then when you go to work, you, you might take up multiple roles. It could be role of boss, role of peer, role of subordinate. Even in a meeting, you can take up multiple roles. You could be a role of motivator or critic or negotiator or um, strategist, etc. So with each of these roles, you change your behavior almost automatically and you don't need a training course in order to shift your behavior. You just change according to the role. Uh, so if you can understand the mental maps that people hold about their role and change those mental maps, then you can get faster change with less noise. Oh, wow, that's amazing. And, and in talking more just about workplace culture, I mean, what's your definition of, of culture in the workplace and where have you actually seen a real culture change? Yeah, my, my definition is that culture is the patterns of relating, um, thinking and relating between the parts. So culture sits at the collective level it's the way that things work around here. But uh, often we focus more on the behaviors rather than seeing the collective patterns. So it's that difference between what I call the dancer and the dance. The dancer is the behaviors, but the dance is the hidden agreements or the rules and patterns that govern how that workplace operates. Oh, that's brilliant. I mean, you're talking about patterns here, right? So patterns and culture. What what are these and maybe can you give us an example of them? Sure. So when I joined ANZ Bank, which is an Australian bank in the early 2000s, it was at a time where the bank was experiencing a lot of noise and a lot of dissatisfied customers. And in fact, it had the worst customer satisfaction rating of all the banks in Australia. So I joined under a CEO called John McFarlane and he instigated a seven year radical turnaround that um, moved the organization from the worst performing bank to the highest performing bank in the world and one of the most well regarded. And how he did that was by noticing that um, customer satisfaction was low in the branches, but normally you'd intervene and you'd say, oh, well, let's fix that by maybe sending all employees on a customer's training course uh, <laughs> uh, customers you know you sort of intervene at that level but instead we took a step back and we said what's the pattern between the parts so what we noticed was that head office was in role of order giver and the branches the employees and branches were in role of order taker and the pattern of relating between them was uh, we blame each other, you're at fault, you're at fault for the poor customer satisfaction. So there was this circular pattern of blame 
or an agreement to blame each other. And meanwhile, customers were incredibly frustrated and they weren't getting service. So we implemented a new operating model, reframed the role of head office to service provider and an enabler for the branches, reframed the role of the branches to be service providers to the customer. And within a few years, we started to see a shift in the pattern of relating to we work together to provide service to our customers. So obviously that's a simplified version of all yeah. the work. After seven years, uh, the ANZ became the number one bank globally on the Dow Jones Sustainability Index. Oh, that's incredible. That's like a seven year yeah. overnight success, you know? But uh, yeah. And you're right. I mean, things don't ha happen instantly and it's good that they almost had like a, a pretty much a seven year roadmap, you know? Because I think what we've seen a lot of companies that they almost knee jerk react to trying to adjust culture and that can't happen overnight, you know? So, and, and tell me, what have you learned through this, this, these processes? I think one of the key learnings for me is that culture change is leader led. You yeah. can delegate your responsibility for leading culture change to someone else. And it goes to one of the, you know, I joined, um, I was doing some work at an infrastructure company um, several years ago. And in my first week, I was meeting with the executive team and they were telling me how the company needed to create a much more commercial culture because the projects that they were working on, a high percentage of them were sort of hemorrhaging uh, profits and, and basically they needed to become more commercial. So I was talking to the CFO about this for an hour and he was explaining the need for change. And as I stood up to leave, he shook my hand and he said, good luck with changing the culture, Siobhan. And I realized in that moment that he thought it was my job alone in HR to fix the culture. Uh, and I goodness. Down and say, listen, what do you think your role is? What do you think the role of the executive team is? What do you think the role of HR is? What do you think the role of all the different parts of the organization is in relation to this culture change? And that was where we began with an exploration of role and basically reframing from being the role of HR to lead the culture change to being a co-creative leadership with the distinctive role that HR played as an enabler and the executive team played as the leadership group for the that's change. That's brilliant. I, mean, I think that's a common thread we see with most companies. And I think a company that's got this right is, uh, we had an interview with Claude Silver, who's the chief heart officer at Vania Media, you know, and with Gary Vaynerchuk. I mean, he, he classifies himself as, he's the CEO, but he classifies himself as, as the head of culture, you know. Um, and that's, I think, where a stance where the exec or the leadership team should definitely um, be responsible and take ownership of it. They, they can't just delegate and expect HR to lead culture. It's got to be a team thing, you know? So it's, it's a, it's a, it's an incredible challenge, but it's a massive opportunity. So, and, and uh, I mean, why in your, in your point of view, why do you think culture is just so important right now in, in, in companies? I think it's, it's probably always been important, but we're starting to see the impact of not focusing on culture or delegating it to HR and change champions. And essentially yeah. for me, culture has been misdefined in many parts as being about employee engagement exclusively. Mm -hmm. And obviously employee engagement is incredibly important in, in terms of psychological safety and 
inclusion and team building and trust, but it isn't everything in terms mm. of culture. Culture is actually, it impacts every aspect of your business from how you design to how you manufacture to how you use the supply chain. Every aspect of that of your business is impacted by culture. So we have to redefine culture and start to examine it in its commercial, uh, from a commercial lens, not just from an employee, purely employee experience lens, which of course is also commercial, but there are other stakeholders involved in culture. So I think that's part of it. It's building the business case for culture and culture change. So somebody said, if you had to form a culture team in an organization, who do you think should be included and what steps would you take to, to get this going? So when we say culture team, I'd firstly be uh, really clear about what is the role of the culture team because yeah. culture change is leader led. So the leadership team for culture is the executive team with the CEO as the head of that. If you want a team to do some of the work, for example, they might do some workshops or help design some values, then you would put them in that role as enabling the leadership team to find out more about what's going on with the culture. But you keep the leadership clearly uh, with the line, it's line led. So uh, the people involved in that team have to be smart and agile and be able to um, diagnose the patterns essentially. I think that's one of the key things is we often look at the behavior as the dancers, but we don't see the dance. Uh, so this is, we need to rewire our brains to see like in the ANZ example, the solution didn't lie just in fixing the branches and the staff and the branches, the solution lay in the pattern of relating between head office and the branches. Seeing that pattern intervening at the level of the pattern allowed that organization to radically transform. Well, wow, that's incredible. I and mean, we could go on for hours on this. I mean, I, I, um, something that comes to mind and the common request we get is we've, we've often seen um, the HR team uh, see, see how important culture change is, uh, but then they've got a challenge with the exec team not seeing the importance of this, right? Okay. And um, they're trying to motivate for, for the changing of the culture and they're seeing why it's affecting the employees, but they can't get the exec to buy into this. How do you think they can convince or, um, or just, just uh, showcase on why culture is so important for, for organizations right now? Yeah, I think often we start in the wrong place. Yeah. So we start in the place of what's wrong with the culture rather than starting in the place of what is the strategy and how do we enable that? So if you're, let's say you're in a, a division of the army and you, you want to keep your soldiers and civilians safe in war-torn regions, you you have that as your objective. So then underneath that, you say, well, what type of culture do we need to enable that imperative? And you might say, well, we want a disciplined culture. So then the culture comes from strategy. It's an enabler of the strategy rather than sitting outside while employees feel, because that, again, isn't anchored in a business imperative. Uh, you okay. know, business you would say right we, we want to wow our clients with amazing products and we want to grow the market by 
double-digit growth. So you say, right, in order to enable that and to wow the clients and to achieve that growth, we need an innovative culture. HR, can you help us? Because we don't know anything about culture. We need to build that. We, 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 we need to build a business case and then we need to know what the interventions are. So you start in a different place with a different set of questions. Okay. My experience. I see what you mean. So it's going to be heavily tied in with the, with the strategy in the first place. You can't almost put a square pig in a, in a round hole. So. Yeah, you can't just look at it through the lens of the employee. Um, yeah. We have multiple stakeholders. And if you start there, it can be seen as the HR soft, fluffy stuff rather okay. than HR framing its role not as the employee advocate, but HR framing its role as the enabler of business outcomes and the culture that's required to achieve the business outcomes. Oh, that's brilliant, Savon. Well, thanks a lot for your time. I mean, this is amazing. Um, just, to, just to end off, can you maybe just answer just a few final questions? I mean, how do you spend your day on average? I spend less time running HR, I would say, because I've got great people running HR and more of my time in my change role helping the organization to grow and to change more quickly and to become more agile. Okay, brilliant. And um, any, what's your favorite uh, recent uh, reading material? Probably, I really enjoy Harvard Business Review. I've also been enjoying LinkedIn. I think there's some great content up there and th th those are some of my go-to places for great content. Okay, brilliant. And then, any your favorite productivity tool or software that you use every day? Uh, I probably rely very much on my calendar. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's just block out time and that's, that governs it. But I don't, um, I actually block time for thinking and yeah. being creative and for, I allow that time for thinking about strategy, for thinking about change interventions and, and for being creative around that. Because otherwise everybody else owns my time rather than me thinking about it strategically. That is a, um, I think that's the biggest challenge right now, especially people in your role or in strategic roles, is to block out that time to think and reflect. And it's so easy to just to jam pack things in. You know, I try and actually dedicate Friday just to, as a reflector, just to look back, see what we've, right. what can improve on and things we can change. But it's so easy to just jam pack things in and feel like you're productive, but actually you realize how important it is to actually just think and, and, and yeah. work smarter, you know? We're <laughs> Brilliant. Well, uh, Siobhan, thanks so much for your time. Um, uh, we really looking forward to, to getting um, and reading and finding more, more in your book. Um, and we'll just do a, a few links in the podcast for, for the listeners to find out more about how they can order, order it online and read it in their own time. Thank you. And, how, and finally, just how can um, people reach out to you and find out more about you? Um, anybody can connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm, uh, I post on LinkedIn, so that's probably the best way to find me, Siobhan McHale on LinkedIn. Okay, brilliant. Well, thanks again for your time. We really appreciate it. And hopefully um, have an, another episode soon in your next book. Cheers. Thanks thanks very much. Much. Bye. Bye. See you. Bye. <laughs> cool.